Welcome to the Digital Workplace Podcast. These are conversations with CEOs of digital companies, thought leaders, and solution providers about how you can become a level five digital workplace. For the show notes and transcript of this episode, go to thedigitalworkplace.com. Well, welcome back to the Digital Workplace Podcast. Today, our guest is Brett Putter. He is the CEO of Culture Gene and the author of two books, Culture Dex Decoded and Own Your Culture. Hey, Brett, how are you doing today? Neil, I'm very good. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm excited. You have traveled on the same journey as a lot of us, but quite further on and interviewed a lot of cool people. So before we get into your background, one thing we do is we do a check-in round question, a kind of a captcha to prove your humanity here. Okay, so I haven't prepared you for this, but I want you to think about, from your videos, I know that you have children. So my question for you is, what would your kids say is your best quality? I would hope. Um, <laughs> I'd hope my children said that my my best quality is my ability to listen and then and then communicate. So listen and then explain. So I've got a one year old and a three year old, mm. and I try and spend a lot of time explaining why he shouldn't put his finger in the plug. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is not easy to do with with young kids. No, it's definitely not. But yeah, yeah. If kids describe you as a good listener, I think that's a big win. Yeah, yeah. If I have school-age kids, and I would really hope that they would describe me as like a little bit goofy, I guess. Like, I don't want my kids to feel like I was too serious, but I was able to kind of be childlike with them mm. and get into their worlds. Sometimes I do that better than other days, but that's what I would aspire to at least. Yeah, you've given me, that's a good thought for me, actually. I'm probably a little bit too serious. I need to, <laughs> I need to bring a little bit of child childlikeness yeah. into, the, into, the, into the game. Yeah, it's when they come home from school, I feel like that's also my time to be like, okay, let's be a kid for at least an hour, 30 minutes a day and see what that's like. And don't forget that, which is important for our own humanity too, I think. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, Brett, tell us a little bit about your work and, and what you do. So um, Culture Gene is a culture development platform. It's um, a combination of human, ex- human expertise and software. I've built a software platform that replicates the process I take companies to help them define, embed, and manage their culture. And um, I set the business up four years ago now. Before that, before that, I ran an executive search firm. And um, it's essentially, it's my passion. I love it. I eat, sleep, dream about it. It's, it's the thing that I'm going to do until one day, maybe in a long time, I will pass on to the culture in the sky. (laughs) Nice. That's a good way to think about it. Now, in the process of your books and everything, you've done a lot of research and talked to a lot of companies. So give us some background about what that experience has been like. How long of a process was that? Who are some of the people you enjoyed talking to the most? Yeah, so it's actually been, um, it was a longer, the book took longer to write um, for two reasons. Uh, Own Your Culture really took it out of me. I'm not a very good writer. Mm. And the second reason was because the I had to speak to a lot more companies to find companies that actually had a well-defined culture. Yeah. Um, this I actually ended up speaking to 500 and only interviewing just over 50. Wow. So one out of 10 companies has a well-defined embedded culture. Um, I really enjoyed most of the leaders I spoke to were a joy to speak with because for some reason they just want to share and they're really proud of their culture. And they. Yeah. so I spoke with a guy named Mark Organ, highly successful entrepreneur based out of Canada. He founded Influitive um, and before that, sold Eloqua to Oracle. And, um, you know, we spent three and a half hours on two different calls. And he said, if you need more, just let me know, Hmm. Uh, which is amazing to get that out of CEO. So I I really enjoyed speaking with all of the people that I spent time with. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I just finished the No Rules Rules from Netflix. And I think there was a similar experience there with actual, well, the co-author, Aaron Meyer. Uh, she was amazed at how accessible Reed Hastings was during that time, which I think is just kind of also part of the culture. If you're able to create something mm-hmm. like that, then the CEO can spend time on things, projects like this that, that really help other people out as well that goes through. One trend I saw that mostly the, the companies you interviewed were tech companies that came through. So do you feel like that's just kind of where we are right now? And that is that tech companies have pushed the, or certain tech companies have pushed the discussion about culture farther than others? Or what do you think about that? I think more tech companies have done more in culture. Um, and the tech companies I focus on uh, are mainly high growth, more earlier stage companies. And I did that deliberately for the book to be more tactical, not as strategic. Yeah. Um, but tech companies, really good tech companies that do scale well, have to invest in their culture early. And so more tech companies are talking about it, more tech companies are sharing what they do, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think that tech bubble is more aware um, of culture. They don't do it. Nine out of 10 companies don't do a great job of it. Yeah. But the ones that do, do a very good job. Yeah, I think it's important to say, like, just because a company is a tech company doesn't mean it has a great culture. A lot of them have terrible cultures that are out there. There's no such thing as a great culture or a terrible culture. Oh, okay. What do you say? There's only, there's only a strong culture. Okay. A functional culture or a weak weak culture or dysfunctional culture. Okay. A, a great company may be a great company for you to work in uh-huh. or a terrible culture for you to work in. Hmm. But, it, but it could be, you know, you could actually have a strong functional culture that is a place that I wouldn't want to work in. Hmm. Sure. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, yeah. But there are, there are a lot of companies sort of that claim to have a well-defined culture, but but it's all surface. There's, there's some values and mission and vision, but actually, as soon as you scratch a little bit below the surface, it's it's uh, there's an autocratic um, or uh, a very controlling CEO who dri- who's driving the business forward the way they want to drive it. So would you say strong and well-defined are synonymous for you when you're talking about culture? Yeah. Um, so strong, uh, strong and well-defined and functional where the way the company operates uh, increases the speed and velocity of the business. So to give an example of the opposite of that, if your business is full of people who are backstabbing and political, that is a dysfunctional culture that will slow your business down. It won't accelerate it. Mm-hmm. A, functional, a functional culture will be one where there is feedback, communication, transparency, um, it's a, and no politics, no backstab. Is it possible? I'm just thinking now, could you have like a culture where you said, hey, look, we are an autocratic culture. Like we got a grandfather here that's calling all the shots and we just do what he says. And that's our culture book. Would you still define that as a strong culture? I would, I would, destri- I, I would describe it as a strong culture if it was defined. In other words, yeah. we are, you, you've joined the mafia. This is how we work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very strong culture. One I wouldn't want to work in, but, um, you know, different strokes for different folks. Nice. I like that. Well, let's get into a few of the topics. You, you have like nine rules or I don't know how you say rules or not, but nine things that remote work is a part of. How do you frame that discussion? 
Yeah, these are these are the nine best practices that uh, remote companies over-index on in comparison to co-located or office-based environments. Yeah, and I came I came about these nine because when I started building my software, I was actually the the seed for it was where I was approached by two remote companies um, at the same time almost, and I couldn't do the work they wanted me to do because they were remote and I you did all my work in person, <laughs> um, and so I realized I needed I thought remote was going to be big at some stage and it would be worthwhile me turning my process into a digital process anyway. So I then decided I needed to understand why remote companies did what they did. Because mm. I, you know, I was following GitLab, I was following Buffer, I was following companies like Hotjar. And just, just, I also inter- interviewed a bunch of these companies uh, for the book and for my blog. And um, I just realized there was something really different. And mm. so the, my research, it's, it's actually ongoing now, but I, I, can, I continue to just dig down deep into these companies. And I don't know if I've read 2,000 pages of the 8,000-page GitLab manual, <laughs> but I've read a lot of them. Yeah. And, and really, the, the nine best practices are they deliberate about their culture because they have to be. Um, they focus on communication. They processize the business. They customize the recruitment and onboarding. They work very hard on building, enhancing, and demonstrating trust um, through transparency invariably. They focus on results and outcomes. Uh, It's not about hours. They work really, really hard on developing social connection because loneliness is the first step towards burnout or mental health issues. Mm -hmm. They add a lot of structure um, into the day and into the week and, and, try to bring more structure into how people work. And they are very, very disciplined about documentation. Those nine best practices are what companies like GitLab, Buffer, Zapier, TopTel, Hotjar, and many others really, really focus on. You have some great videos that I've been watching on YouTube that we're going to link to in the show notes so people can see those. Because I think the things that you've come up with are, are very similar to what we are seeing in the discussions we're having I like to focus on intentionality. I feel like that's a, a big difference between remote cultures and ones that are kind of office-based um, is that you just have to take stuff seriously. You have to do it on purpose as it comes through. Where I want to start our discussion right now is in terms of where, where a lot of uh, leaders and CEOs find themselves. We feel like we've passed the peak of the pandemic. Now, we might look back on this moment and just laugh at ourselves and be like, oh, you had no idea what was coming. But for a lot of people, vaccines are starting to come out. We're starting to get the sense of, okay, we're going to get back to some kind of normal. Things have changed forever, for sure. But it's going to be different, but it's going to be similar to how it was. So I I think there's a lot of leaders out there that think, okay, we're going to get back into the office. But now our eyes have been open. We can do more of a hybrid type model where we can have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. and It's going to be great. Why is that a dangerous thought to be going into the season? It's a terrible thought um, for a number of reasons. The work I've done, I've realized, and the interviews I've done, I've realized that hybrid is actually harder to lead mm. because when we were working remote as we are now, we're all in this together. We're experiencing the same things in the same ways. As soon as you move to hybrid, you thre- are threatened with an us versus them situation. Us in the office, them working remotely. And us in the office experience work differently. We experience the culture differently. We experience the camaraderie differently, the social interaction differently. The communication is different. The the people who are working remote feel like they are often ignored. They're not included. They don't experience the culture in the same way. They are 
sometimes, and it's just human nature, you know, you'll have a conversation with somebody in, in, in the office and go, let's do that. But actually, you should have spoken to Jack, who is who is our remote colleague, because Jack needs some input on it. But it's mm. too late now, because now you're going to go ahead and do it. And so remote, the, the people who work in remote also feel like they have to advocate for themselves more, and they feel like they are not considered in the same way that for um, promotion in the same way that um, the people working in their office for. And the ultimate outcome of this is your remote people feeling like second-class citizens. Mm. And and this was kind of okay for remote and flexible workers because there were only a handful of really good remote companies and they weren't all going to poach your people at the same time. But now there are thousands, literally thousands of new hybrid companies and remote companies that are going to focus hard on developing their culture and demonstrating that culture. And those remote or hybrid companies will happily recruit your best and brightest if they feel like they're being treated like second-class citizens. It's a really dangerous place to be. I think that that's very accurate that when we think that we're going to get back to the office, and if people want the option of working remote, we can give that option. But if you haven't, again, coming back, intentionally planned for what that's going to look like to make that feel like an equal footing, that's a problem. So how would you recommend for companies that that are looking to kind of make this transition to say, okay, we don't want to lose our office space because we still feel like that could be an asset for us and it could augment the work experience. What are some good models you've seen of, of how companies can do that? Still have a remote first mindset, but bring in some of these real world concepts as well. So your idea of a remote first mindset is almost quaint because most people don't know what a remote first mindset is, what it looks like or how to have one. Yeah, let's start there. Okay. Let's, <laughs> I think that the, the remote first mindset, um, really the best way to think about this is to ask yourself two questions. Um, how do we create a fulfilling, inclusive, and equitable experience for all of our colleagues? The second question is, how do we create a scenario where there are no advantages or disadvantages to working remote or in the office? And that's in those two questions encapsulates what remote, remote first is. And there are really only five answers to this. Treat remote work as the default way of working. Build remote work best practices into the way you do things, the DNA and your culture. Uh, make sure that remote f- employees feel a part of it, feel as much a part of it as everybody else. They must experience the culture and the work in the same way. And the last thing, which most leaders don't like when I say this, is leaders must not work from the office. Mm. Leaders must work remote. Because otherwise, people will ultimately congregate in the office with you, and then you will end up with second-class citizens and upset people because of the different cultures you're developing. Hmm. So the, that remote-first element is, I think that's a, um, something that really needs a lot of work in terms of leaders getting their heads around exactly what that means. Yeah, to assume that first everyone's going to be working remotely and to start with that assumption and then to build back... I guess that's my question is because you said that there shouldn't be any advantages or disadvantages to working one way or the other, but there has to be like, there's obviously going to be some, no matter what, if you offer both options, people are going to choose in office because they like being around people. They feel like they get more energy from that or or something like that. So it's an advantage to them to be in the office as opposed to remote. And somebody who works remote says, you know, I like that flexibility. I need that time to be able to be there. I don't like the commute. So that's an advantage for them. So explain more what you mean by there's no advantage or disadvantage. 
Yeah, what you're talking there is individual preference. Right. And if the individual preference gains them an advantage for themselves, that's fine. That's sure. their perception. It's what they believe and they want to be in the office all the time. That's great. But when it's across the board, in other words, if we hold a meeting and the people who are remote are not considered, in other words, we all sit in the office together and the people remote are, are dialing in and they can't hear what everybody's saying because there's a lot of talk over and the mic's in the wrong place and they don't feel, they're not inclusive, they're not included, they're not getting an equal experience, they're not getting working the same way. So, so your processes and the systems in your business have to be designed so that when it is, when it is group-wide, then it has to be equal. When it's individual and preference-based, knock yourselves out. Sure. When it comes to meetings, I've seen some people advocate for if one person is going to be on a video call, then really everyone should be on a video call, even if you're on the same room, just to give that sense of like some equanimity and equality around that. Do you agree with that? Completely. And you've got to, you know, when you, for example, thinking of, let's say, social connection elements, you know, if... You have pizza in the office. If you can make this happen, you get pizza delivered to their homes. Yeah. To that level of thinking, it's that level of detail so that you've got an equal playing field for everybody. Yeah, I think these are deep questions. We just really scratch the surface when it comes to figuring out how to make that work. And just something we want to emphasize to all the leaders listening in, if that is a plan for you is to say, hey, let's just do hybrid now that we see some advantages. You've got to reorient yourself and start with these things. So this is great. Brett, there's one topic that I feel like you are as much or more of a geek than I am, which is about communication and asynchronous and synchronous communication. And you've you've used a term which I've played around with, but I've never seen anyone else say, which is semi-synchronous communication. Yeah. So for all the nerds out there that love to talk about these type of communication type styles, walk us through that. What, what do you mean by semi-synchronous? So the important thing for leaders to realize and think about is that remote companies default towards asynchronous communication yep. and some companies actually exclude it completely unless it's um, unless it's for emergency situations but synch synchronous communication requires presence and availability mm -hmm. that means that that we are now in synchronous communication I cannot be doing anything else and that means I actually can't do my job if you know whatever my job is so the problem that companies are going through now is everybody's doing synchronous communication instead of reading documentation and then doing their jobs, which would be asynchronous communication. So asynchronous communication is the situation whereby you do not expect somebody to be awake even or available to respond to your message and your business is designed in such a way that that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, Semi-synchronous tools are things like um, uh, chat such as Slack or Teams, or if you still use Skype, you know, messaging, that, that's, that's where, that's a semi-synchronous semi -synchronous communication. Email falls into semi-synchronous communication, although really it, is, it, it's, it should be asynchronous, but people still can use it, people still respond immediately to email. Yeah, this is the great dynamic that I love because for email was meant to be asynchronous, like I'll send you a message, and then when you get to it, you send it back to me. Yeah. But somewhere along the way, we turned it into chat. Like we turned it into instant chat. Like yeah. I'm going to reply back, reply back, reply back, reply back. And so the nature of the tool might lend itself towards one or the other. But humans have figured out how to game that sometimes and hack into it and say, no, I'm going to turn this into 
instant synchronous. And we tend to push that way. I feel like we tend to push towards synchronous instead of pulling back. Well, we're designed for synchronicity. Right. We're not designed to talk and then wait for an hour and a half to yeah. for somebody to respond. But um, if I don't respond really quickly, my wife gets very annoyed with me when she's <laughs> when, when she. <laughs> um, so se- so semi synchronous communication is chat like Slack or Teams. You got forums like um, Twist or Discord. Um, you got project and task tools like Trello or Figma or um, Git- GitHub. Um, and then co- collaborative documentation is more of an asynchronous tool, so Google Docs or or Dropbox page, that that sort of thing. But essentially, what's what's happened is companies have started to use these tools, and actually, ideally, they need to define what each tool is tool is for and when you use it. Absolutely, and that's really where we land on too when we talk about these communication things. I'll, we'll link to an article that talks about the four like main challenges that leaders today have to deal with that they didn't have to worry about before. And one of those is response time because earlier in, in pre-digital days, response time was either I'm right in the same room with you or I'm going to send a letter or an inner office note or something like that. And it's going to take a while to get back. Mm. But now we have all these levels of responses. Like, do I need something responded back instantly or is it like an hour or a half day or a full day or a week? Like there's all these uh, things that are there. We have to think about durability of the communication. How long does it need to last? Is this a chat message that if it goes away tomorrow, it's fine? Or is it something that we need to refer back to a year from now even? So there's a a ton of these issues that people need to take seriously for sure. Yeah, I I think about it in in terms of low permanence and high permanence. Mm -hmm. So high permanence is your documentation, your knowledge bases, your wikis, your um, uh, company handbook where, you know, that uh, everything that almost everything that's communicated becomes a high permanence in a, in a remote environment. Whereas pre COVID, everything was low permanence. It was a call. It was a, a, a meeting and bumping to somebody in the, in the corridor or et cetera, et cetera, where that wasn't uh, recorded. It wasn't noted. It wasn't retained for the value of the organization. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of thinking that has to go into this. Yep. Absolutely. Last quick question. Four day work week. Where are you on that? What do you think? Um, I, so Buffer a couple of months ago went four day because they were so concerned about the levels of stress. Uh-huh. Um, I've seen people try it, uh, and I've yet to see companies who who really you can come back and say, yeah, it's really working for everybody and it's all great. But these sorts of experiments, I think, are good because it demonstrates that the leadership is aware and they are prepared to explore and and experiment to see what you know, what works. Yep. And this is the critical thing because your culture is an iterative being, you know, element that's just growing and developing and, and adding a four-day work week, if it works great, your people feel better for it. If it doesn't, pull it back and and and, and carry on with the five-day, seven-day, whatever it is that you work. Yeah, I'm totally in line. I feel like that's where I love to see what we call like level five workplaces is that they're running these experiments because the rest of us are watching and we're, we're wondering like, where do we go next? And if you do have a high-functioning remote work culture, if you're a high-functioning digital workplace, like, man, we need you to take those experiments and, and to figure out what's going on and what works. And it's not going to work for everybody, but getting that insight and that, that data is really going to help everyone else. Brett, this has been fun. Like I said, we can go on for a long time, but where should people go if they want to learn more about you and your work? And we haven't even got into the software you run, but I'm sure it's fascinating. 
Um, so my um, my website's uh, www.culturegene.ai. Um, I'm on LinkedIn at Bretton Putter. I'm on Twitter. Um, and yeah, people can reach out on the website or LinkedIn. I've my I, I budget 25% of my time to learn about company culture. So I love talking to people about what they're doing in their companies and what's working, what's not working, what they're trying. So I'm happy to just shoot the breeze with 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 leaders. Um, so please reach out. Fantastic. Well, it's great to get to know you. We are going to continue these conversations in many forums. So we look forward to having you back sometime and talking more. Really enjoyed it, Neil. Thanks for your time. This has been the Digital Workplace Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to leave a review wherever you find. Go to thedigitalworkplace.com and sign up for our twice a month newsletter keeps you up to date on the best ways to build a level five digital workplace. Music for the show is provided by City of Sound. I'm your host, Neil Miller. Keep moving forward.